Hello, this is Rachel Lynn, and you are listening to Upstage Left. In this episode, I speak with Michael Legg, the artistic director of the Montana Repertory Theater. Before coming to Montana, he served as the director of the professional training company at Actors Theater of Louisville. In this episode, we talk about the role of regional theater in rural communities and how Michael came to be an artistic director after starting out his career as an actor. I'm so excited to bring you this episode from Montana, where I've been working for the last six weeks on an adaptation of War of the Worlds, which is a play all about the importance of broadcast radio. One of my favorite things about working out here has been the open rehearsal policy that Montana Rep has, which means that anyone can sit in on our rehearsals from day one. And so we've had guests coming by our rehearsals who have nothing to do with the show and who don't work in the theater and who are just there because they love seeing how a play comes to life. I feel like Michael has really cultivated this beautiful community around the act of storytelling. Here is Michael Legg. Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, let's see. It's your second season here at Montana Rep. It is, yes. As the AD. Yeah. How's it going? Uh, good. <laughs> That's the, there was a little reservation there, but it's going well. It's going really well. There are a lot of challenges in running a theater. I mean, we're the only full season equity house in the entire state. And we're located, and it's a big state. <laughs> and we're located in one of the larger cities, actually, I think it's the fourth largest city, maybe maybe third, but still only 80,000 people here. And the distances are, are pretty far between places. You know, it's it's an hour and a half to Helena, it's five hours to Billings, it's four and a half to Bozeman. So, you know, we're not, we don't draw a lot of audience from outside the sort of Missoula area. Mm-hmm. So figuring out how to sustain a regional theater with an audience base this small is, is, is challenging, yeah. Hmm. And before you were here, you were at Actors Theater. I was, yeah. For 11 years? For 11 years, for a very long time. For 11 years. Yeah, I learned a lot about institutional theater there, the things I think can work and the things that that don't, um, what I love about it, what I don't love about it. But that's where I really discovered new work. That's where I met so many playwrights who are are now friends and collaborators. It, It really sort of fostered an incredible love for you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at my happiest, I think, when I'm at a table with a playwright and a bunch of actors and a dramaturg, and we don't ever get up from the table. We just live inside that text. Um, I think sometimes when it's it's time to stand up and, you know, figure out where you move in the space, I, I, that's my least favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and, and, and I've um, that's sort of where I started doing uh, new play development workshops, Um uh, and that led to a gig in Texas that I've had for five years now uh, called Wildwind Performance Lab, where we do a lot of new play development in the summers. Um, and then that led me to try to do some of that same work here, which is also a challenge, I think, in in Montana. So the, the theater is 53 years old. It's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. But it was very much a, a place that, that would produce um, plays from the classic American canon, you know, so everything Neil Simon ever wrote. Um, I think their two big, big money makers were uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and The Great Gatsby. Yeah. Mm. The old artistic director Swan Song was on Golden Pond. And so there's been a lot of just 
convincing audiences to trust plays that they've never heard of, to take a chance on new work and to figure out, you know, as we're trying to hold on to audiences and, and cultivate new ones, trying to figure out how to reimagine what an American classic is, you know, what, what are the, what are the pieces of, and it doesn't even have to be a play. What's, what's a, 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 a movie or a TV show or something that's in the public domain that we can commission a playwright to, to do a reimagining of, to try to start talking about how some of those things are relevant in the 20th century, 21st century. Where are we now? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's, that feels like a stopgap measure too. I mean, I feel like that's not always where we're going to be, but as we're trying, as I am trying to straddle this time between what this theater used to be and, and what I, I want it to be. And I think that it can be, and, you know, I think one of the things that I knew when I took this job was that keeping the doors of a theater open in 2020 is really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, we lost so many theaters in terms of 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 the financial issues and, and the recession. I mean, I lived through that at, at a flagship regional theater where people lost their jobs and budgets got cut by millions of dollars and, you know. And then today with the new tax law where, you know, public giving is disincentivized and, and, you know, trying to find people who want to support what sometimes feels, you know, in a, in a, in an age of social media to be a, a kind of an archaic art form. You know, when I'm asking people to know, come, come sit in a theater and share a story. Yeah. It's, it can, it can be challenging in a rural community to, yeah. to help make that happen. Why do you feel like, do you feel like this community, like this, the people who were coming before you arrived mm -hmm. were attached to like nostalgia, like old, oh, yeah. older plays? Yes. Yeah. 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 It was, there was a comfort in it, I think. I mean, I mean, I don't know for sure. I've, I've, I've tried very hard in my year and a half now, almost two years here to meet as many people in the community as I can to, to ask that question, but also to, to, to sort of figure out, you know, one of our new missions is we spent the first year sort of rethinking what our mission should be was, was, um, cause, cause the other thing this theater did is they used to do a national tour. They would take that classic American play and they would take it out to presenting houses all over the country, mostly in, in rural markets and small, uh, places in Alabama and Kentucky and Texas. And, and, uh, they did a lot in Florida, places like that. Uh, and a lot of those presenting houses are closing too because they can't they can't get people to come. Um, mm. uh, um, but but we decided that what we needed to do is instead of taking this out, we needed to actually refocus here. We're the only we're the only professional theater in the state, and that we have to rededicate ourselves to making sure that everybody in this state has access to to theater. Um, and and then that led us to start thinking about. Well, well, if we're going to do that, we have to actually tell stories for the people who live here, for the people who are in Montana and, and learning who those people are. The incredibly um, uh, uh, large veteran community that we have here, the, the incredibly large um, uh, American Indian population that lives in this state. And, and I don't think this theater was was telling those stories the way that they that they should have been. Mm. So, um that's sort of what we wanted. We want to do now, but the old audiences, that was the question where, 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 yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was a nostalgia factor, but it was a comfort factor. It was, you know, the only other theater in town, which is a community theater, a non-professional theater, you know, they do big name musicals, mm -hmm. right? It's they, you know, they they did elf and, 
and Freaky Friday and, you know, that's, and so there's also a level of sort of comfort and name recognition that comes with those shows that the community here was, is very happy to see, which yeah. is great. But, you know, I think, I think one of our jobs here is to, is to try to challenge them to expand, to expand their repertoire, to get to know playwrights, to get to know plays and to see things that are, that are talking about, about things that are happening right now. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about where you come from. Oh, wow. like, <laughs> you were at Actors Theater for 11 years, but where oh. were you before that? So uh, before that, I was in New York. Uh, I worked as a theatrical agent for four years. That was a weird left turn. So wow. I, so I, if you want to go way back, I was born in, in Colorado. Okay. My dad was in the army. He got drafted in Vietnam. Uh, and so we moved to uh, Colorado. We were on the Army Base Fort Carson, which is where I was born. And then uh, he got out, thankfully, and uh, we moved back to where his family was in East Tennessee, like in the mountains of East Tennessee, about as far east as you can get and still be in the state, mm. in a very rural community and grew up incredibly poor. Uh, we lived in a trailer park. My dad worked a factory job all of his life. My mom worked seasonal work. Um uh, and so that's one of the things that I think drew me back here is, is I've spent my life in the mountains, at least a, a large portion of it. And, and it was in Tennessee that I first discovered theater. It's where I first I first learned that some of these things were possible. Um, I got out, which is maybe another story we can talk about. For about <laughs> eight years, I worked uh, for a division of Dean Witter uh, in their credit granting department i would people would go to radio shack if you remember radio shack yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if they wanted to buy a big tv at radio shack they would call me and i would i would take all their information and look at their credit bureau and decide whether or not to give them a credit card to wow. buy the tv it was really interesting i was 18 years old doing this it was it was stupid i don't know <laughs> why they let me do it but i learned so much about about finances there right about mm about how people get to the point where they can buy things and how the system works, which was really helpful. Anyway, um, I did two degrees in English um, and then decided eventually to go back and do my MFA in acting. Um, and at the end of that, I moved to New York, like most people do. And what I learned uh, is that even if you go to a place that has in, incredible training that will teach you craft, that will teach you how to be an actor and be good at it, they don't really teach you how to make a living. Yeah, you know they they tend to they tend to train you and then they tend to at the end of it sort of drop you off by the side of the road like a puppy that they don't want anymore and say <laughs> good luck and come back if you get famous or if you can give us money and they don't you know they don't teach you how to survive in a very difficult profession you know when the median income for a stage actor is what seven thousand dollars give or take oh my god yeah sorry <laughs> um so what i learned quickly when i moved to new york and i already had my equity card too because i um i went to an institution that was associated with a regional theater and i worked there my third year i got my equity card it was great where was it uh university of north carolina in greensboro triad stage uh, which is a great little spt house there where i learned a lot and and got my card and I moved to New York, but very quickly realized that I had no clue what I was doing. And I looked around and saw people who, you know, also moved from smaller communities without a lot of experience, didn't come there from the Yales and NYUs and UCSDs of the world. And, 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 you know, I saw people who, who were talented and who really were working hard, but, but, but nothing was happening. And then two or three years later, with sort of dead eyes would say, I'm, I'm done. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And and I thought that's not that's not how that's not how this should work. Um, so I was like, well, my job then is to find out, figure out exactly how this business works. And I applied for an internship at um, Alyssa Myers Casting, which yeah. I'm assuming is still is still up and running. Um, yeah, it yeah. Is. Um, and they told me I was they weren't interested in me because they knew I was an actor <laughs> and I was overqualified, they said. Um, but I had a really good talk with the folks there and and they remembered me and there was a small little um, uh, boutique agency called Karen Goldberg at the time. And then it became uh, Charles Karen and Associates and then it shuttered with a lot of other smaller agencies uh, long after I left. And they were looking for somebody there to be a sort of a junior agent. It was very small. There were only four of us in the office counting me. And they they really wanted me there. They wanted the person they wanted there. They wanted to take care of people who were coming right out of undergrad, right? So you'd go to all the showcases mm-hmm. and they would invite clients in. And when they'd sign the clients, you know, the first year or so is is can be kind of pivotal, right? In terms of you figuring out how this whole thing works. And and I think that it's still very true that a lot of agencies, if not almost all of the agencies, are not really interested in developing clients. They tend mm-hmm. to sign a whole bunch of, of people and they, they sort of throw you out there. And if you book a couple of things, then we're great. And if not, they'll drop you after a year or two. Yeah. Um, but this particular agency was like, oh, actually, we, we, we want to help develop young actors. We just don't want to do it because <laughs> they have too many questions and they're always calling and blah, blah, blah. And, and so I was like, I'll do that. I think that, that that makes total sense to me because that is a way that I can learn how this works. And so I worked there for four years. And in the beginning, I was, you know, the the agents there, a couple, very old school, very old school, like cranky, mean mean people, but who were good at their jobs and were good at really sort of thinking ahead in someone's career. And and, and their whole philosophy was really relationship-based. So it's like, we're going to get you in this room now. You're not going to book this, but you're going to make a really good impression. And we're going to, and, and you, you get prepared and you get in there and you do the best job that you can. And this person will see you and remember you so that we can get you in for something that we know you're better for. Or, you know, this director is going to be in that room and this artistic director. And then, you know, you make sure that you say hi. And then later down the road, we're going to reconnect you. And it was all about long-term thinking. It was fascinating. And, and so I was learning that and and taking a bunch of, you know, 22, 23-year-olds right out of undergrad and and holding their hands through this process as we all sort of learned it together. Mm. Um, Were you sad to leave acting? Or did you leave acting at that time or um, did you keep I acting? Did, did I? I mean, I came back to it. I continue to come back to it. You know, I've, I did <laughs> – I did this really weird pilot for Italian television a few years back that I hope nobody ever sees. <laughs> and I do some, I, you know, act in some workshops and some readings. I'm, I, 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 I've come into uh, enjoying directing a whole lot more than than acting. I don't. I would say I haven't. I haven't completely abandoned it by any stretch. But I, um, I think what I learned is that. I think maybe what every actor figures out over time is how often do I need to do this to be happy right to to feel fulfilled to feel like my career is progressing and i think my answer to that question ended up being i don't know once every year or two i will sit down and and flex that muscle um and that's okay if it's not any more than that that feels comfortable to me yeah so i worked as an agent for four whole years and uh and it was through that job actually that i met 
a lot of folks down at, at actors, actors who work there, who, who spoke highly of it. And Zan Sawyer Daly, who was their resident casting director. Mm. Uh, yeah. And then I ended up sort of transitioning into that job because I, I, what I, what I enjoyed about it, you know, it's funny that job, I don't want to be an agent ever again, <laughs> but it was, it was maybe the only job that I've ever had that I, I don't think I ever woke up and thought, I don't want to go to work today. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I would go in, it was so relationship based. I would go in and I, a lot of people that I talked to, I'd, I'd never met or I met once or twice in person. It was all on the phone, but I would meet them. And my job was to call somebody up and say, I have this actor that I really believe in. And, and I think you should take a chance. That was most of my day, you know, and then negotiating some contracts, which was really educational, but mostly it was just, you know, cause I, I, what I'd love to do, what are the, one of the things I love about my job and all the jobs that I've had in this industry is, is about making connections is about, about trying to put people together who are going to go off and make incredible work. Uh, and that was what this job was. It was, it was, I believe in you and, and let's see what we can make happen. And, mm -hmm. and it's going to be rough because, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing fair or, or objective about anything that we do or how choices are made. It's, 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 disheartening most of the time. You know, I think about so my dad who worked in a factory all of his life. The thing that I am not envious of, of, of that, I think is a career, but the one thing that I am envious of, he, um, he worked in a factory that processed flour, like baking flour. Uh -huh. And he would, he worked on a line where this, this contraption would fill 50 pound bags of flour. And when it was full, he would, weigh them. And if it weighed 50 pounds, he would seal them up and he would put them on, you know, a thing that went to a train that went to a truck that went to wherever the flower would go. And, and he, you know, he always knew that he'd done a good job, right? There was, there was an objective finish right. to what he did. The back weighed 50 pounds. He'd done his job. Right. And that's something that I think, uh, folks in this industry, we don't, we don't, we don't have, right. Mm -hmm. Because the evaluation of our work is so subjective. The mm. choosing of who gets the work is so subjective and rooted in, in, in the perception and the biases of the human that is making that decision. Uh, yeah. and, and so, you know, whether you get a job or don't get a job, you'll, you will probably never know why. Um, um, and that, that's, that's one of the hardest things I think about the job. And even if you did know why, it probably wouldn't make sense. And I, I wish we could. How do, how do we change? How do we change that? How do we how do we fix that? I don't I don't know the answer to that question. The systems are so old and, and inherently locked into how we how we do this. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a longer conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as an actor, I do feel like it's like well, you kind of just have to look at it as not a problem. It's just mm. it's not it's not an issue to be solved because yeah, it's it's you know. It's not worth even wasting time thinking about yeah, yeah. like you know um anyways <laughs> that got really uh, yeah yeah sorry about that, that was my fault. no not at all <laughs> so then uh did you did you do the program at actor theater did you do mm -hmm. the apprenticeship program or did you I create did not i did not um i um the first time i encountered it was as, as an agent and they had just started taking the folks who were in that program to New York to do a showcase. Okay. 
And so I went and I saw them and the, the agent uh, who trained me, who worked there said, you, you should come. This is, this is a really interesting program They're You know, they're, they're taking kids and, and um, you know, it's very practical in, in nature and, and the folks who are coming out are really interesting and it's something you should see, especially in terms of counseling um, young folks who are out of undergrad who are thinking, should I go to grad school or should I go something else? And I'm, I, I don't know, I have such mixed feelings that change on hourly, I think, about graduate school. Um, I think that the training is vital. I think that, that it's, it's really important to continue to hone your craft, but I don't think you should pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that the system is, is again, speaking of, of, of systems, it's, you know, it puts you in so much debt that you, you can't afford to actually do the thing that you were trained to do. Yeah. And so I'm really interested and have always been interested in alternative training programs, things that feel a little more, um, like an apprenticeship in the classic sense of the word where it's, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I took this job is because this is one of a, only a handful of professional theaters in the country that is embedded in or, or, uh, associated with a regional theater. And, you know, my, my, my sort of life changing experiences have been in programs like that. When I, I grew up in, um, when I grew up in East Tennessee and I didn't see a play for the first time until I was in high school. And that is because somebody gave money to, you know, somebody, somebody paid to put some of us on a bus and drive us to Knoxville, which was an hour and a half West. And we went to the Clarence Brown theater, which is, um, an equity house that's on the campus of the university of Tennessee. Mm. And I saw a couple of shows for the very first time that blew my brain. And it's why I made a decision to do this. Probably I saw this, um, company that's not in existence anymore called the road company that, um, toured around uh, mostly um, the Appalachians and, and did and did theater for underserved communities. Uh, and they did this weird sort of reimagining of Tartuffe, which is a play I don't like, but they did. <laughs> it is just an incredible production. And then I saw um, She Loves Me, the, the musical. musical. Yeah, which is still maybe my favorite musical and probably just because of that. I, I love it. But, you know, that that sort of experience. And then afterwards I got to, to talk to and meet not only the professional actors there, but the students who were in the cast and the ones who were understudying and on the crew and, and seeing sort of how that, that opportunity to learn from people who were a little further ahead uh, was fascinating to me. You know, and the idea and what, what, I've, what I think what I've found, too, is that um, anybody who's been in this business long enough, not anybody, but I think most people uh, uh, would not be where they were now if someone had not sort of reached back and said, come, come, yeah, here, let me introduce you to this person or here's this opportunity or just let me talk to you for a while. And the idea of that sort of shared wisdom that sort of passed on is really fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, where were we? No, so, but that's great. Right. Wait, and, I actually have a question about that. Yeah. So please. like that was your first time seeing a show. It was. Yeah. Were you immediately like, I need to work in the theater or was it a, were you resistant to the idea? Yeah, I was, I was immediately into it and then, and then, and then resistant and dropped out. And it's, here's, <laughs> so I, I think the first time I was ever on stage was in kindergarten. Okay. In the kindergarten circus, which is something my kindergarten did every year. And all the kids would play the animals and one of the teacher would be the ringmaster. And that's all that I remember. About it. <laughs> Except, you know, again, growing up, 
growing up really without the money to to do anything or go to even go to a movie or anything i i read a lot i spent a lot of time in the library i'd get every book that i could find i started i actually started reading when i was almost not not quite four years old mm. and so when i when i went to kindergarten and and was reading books out loud first they thought that i couldn't be true that i would memorize books because i had them at home but once i the teacher made me read like eight books in a row before she believed that i could actually read <laughs> but then they were super excited because none of the teachers wanted to be the ringmaster in the kindergarten circus and they had a kid who could read and so they gave me all the ringmaster's lines on little index cards and my grandma made me this um ringmaster hat out of cardboard and and so I got to be the ringmaster, and I would you know I didn't I didn't memorize anything. I just stood up and read the cards when it was time, and I, then I was done. And so I did you know some community theater, and and it was but it was all small time stuff. And then I saw this professional show, and I saw what it could be, and I was just in love. And then I came back, and the community theater that I had been working with was doing a production of Our Town, and it's always been my secret dream to play George Gibbs, and it just it hasn't happened. But I hold out hope because I read this – I forget where I read it about this company that did a production where uh, the stage manager was a 12-year-old girl, and, and George and Emily were both in their 80s. So wow. I got one more shot. It'll, it'll, come, it'll come back around. You can make it happen. Right. I, believe. I, I think you should bring that. it. Yeah, bring that to Montana Rev. <laughs> Um, but I auditioned for George as a legit, you know, 16, 17 year old. And, um, the director ended up casting his best friend who was 30. Uh-huh. And so then ended up having to cast a George. I couldn't, I couldn't be a 16 year old George to a 30 year old Emily. And that was my, that was oh. my, that was my first disillusionment with the American <laughs> theater. <laughs> It all happened so fast. It you all happened so fast. You experienced all the. Especially <laughs> in, in the space of about eight months, I Politics went from like, oh my god, this is this is my life. To how can anybody do this and stay sane? Um, yeah, and, and then I then I said no, and then I, <laughs> then I took eight years off, and I missed it incredibly, and then I went and then I went back. That's that's sort of the tying all of those ends together. Um. So I saw them in Showcase. I saw these apprentices in Showcase um, and became fascinated with this program and its possibilities. And uh, the job came open to be the assistant. And uh, for whatever reason, I think I think I was the only person who applied. Um, so I got the job and I uprooted because I, I felt like I wanted to live in that sort of training for a while. Again, the experience of of Clarence Brown and then having, um, done my graduate, uh, work at a, at a, at a university that was associated with a regional theater and, and all of the incredible New York actors that I met and designers and stage managers who every one of them said, if you ever come to New York, call me and we'll get coffee. And I didn't with a lot of them because I didn't believe that it was true. And Mm -hmm. I've learned now that nobody makes that offer if they don't mean it. And you should always take advantage of that whenever you can. Um, But it was so formative that I was like, this is, this is something I'm really, I'm really, I'm really, I'd seen so many young actors come into New York that were my clients who would book, you know, a regional gig paying four or $500 a week. And it was just such a great opportunity for them. And I would call them and say, you booked it. And they would say, that's great, but I don't think I can take it because I have to pay my student loans. And I, 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 I don't think I can, even if I sublet my place, I don't think that I can afford to do that job. It's a horrible catch 22, right? Where, yeah. um, where people can't afford to take the jobs that will get them the jobs that they eventually have to get in order to afford to live. 
Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I took this job <laughs> and I went down and I spent a lot of time there trying to grow and shape and change the program and, and to look at it as um, from an agent's point of view uh, and do my best to, to not just drop them off at the side of the road, but to say, okay, when you finish, you know, we started instead of taking a showcase to New York where you're competing with, you know, that there, there are over a hundred different showcases that happen in New York in about a three month period. Wow. It's, it's, yeah, there's so many. And I was like, I'm, I don't want to jump in the middle of that. What happens if we bring the showcase here? And, you know, because I had made so many connections with other agents and casting directors in my job, I just called them up and said, hey, we've got this little thing called the Humana Festival. Would you want to come down and spend the weekend? Oh, and while you're here, you're going to see these 20, 22, way too many young actors. <laughs> um, and you'll, you'll see them in a, in a traditional showcase, but you will also see them perform because they get their own show in the festival and some of them are cast in some of the other shows in the festival. So it's an opportunity to see their work from a variety of different angles. Plus we have all these great gatherings and parties. And my job at those is to like tap an apprentice on the shoulder and say, Hey, just don't ask questions. Just follow me. And then drop them off in the middle of a conversation with, you know, Kelly Gillespie from Manhattan theater club. And, mm. and, and, and you're going to meet them as, as, as humans, which is an important part of this, right? It's, yeah. it's, if they can see you as, as a, as a functioning human being and as a, as a nice person, um, they're, they're much more likely to, to, to remember you and want to work with you. Um, so basically we would just, you know, we held, we brought down a couple dozen, maybe more sometimes agents and casting directors from New York and then from Chicago, uh, and we, we held them captive because they couldn't, <laughs> couldn't go anywhere until they got back on a plane. And that was, that was, was really successful. It was, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the folks who came through the program while I was there are still, are working, you know, that's, or, or they have decided not to work and they're okay with it. Right. I think one of my main goals for that program while I was there was that when you left it, I, I, I hoped that you understood how the business worked. Mm -hmm. You understood how long it might take in order to reach a critical mass, right? Where enough casting directors trusted your work to let you in the room to even have the opportunity to audition. And that might take three, four, five, six, seven years, but you understood that that was the path that you were on. Right. And so you understood that your goal setting had to be incremental, right? Your goals could not be, I, I know I, I will have been successful when I make enough money to live, <laughs> right? Or I know I will have been successful when my grandma sees me on TV, like, like the, which is what most young actors, you know, if you ask them, that's, those are the two things they cite the most often is when, mm -hmm. I, when I can make a living at what I love or when I'm famous, some version of that. And that's just not going to happen. So if you understand that it might take four, five, six, seven, ten years, I know people that it didn't happen to for 20 years, then yeah. you start to be able to redefine what success means to you. And you do it in smaller ways. So a good audition is a success. Um, going to an opening night party and, and, and reconnecting to uh, a, a casting director or even an actor or a director that I hadn't seen in a while and, and making one more impression with that person is a success. Sometimes just getting the hell up in the morning in New York is a success. And so if that, if, if you understand that now and you, and you decide not to do it, right, then you've made that decision 
with that knowledge, as opposed to so many people that I had seen who quit acting, they stumble around for a few years. They never quite figure out how it works. And then they, they quit ne never understanding, right? It, it, um, what am I trying to say? Like they don't, it, was it my fault? It, like, why did this happen? Right. Or why, why, or why didn't it happen yeah. right away? Because exactly. who didn't, why didn't people see exactly. that I have something to offer or yeah, something like yeah, that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so my goal for this program was, you know, if you can, if you can quit without regret, that's a big gift. It's a, it's, it was a huge it, gift. When, when I would tell people that, that sometimes, it, it seemed like a very sort of weird mission statement for the training <laughs> program. Is like, I want you to be able to quit without regret was sort of my mission statement. Mm. Um, that felt important. And I actually haven't spoken with anyone who um, sees a lot of young artists coming mm. through the door to want to get into a thing, an institution. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, you talked about grad school briefly, and I... Have a lot. Of, also, have a lot of problems with grad school, mostly because of the entrance part of it. Like, yeah. what is it? What makes somebody on the other side of the table who's selecting this cohort mm -hmm. say this person? Or I'm seeing something. Like, what is the thing that you see, or what are you looking for? Even yeah, I yeah. Because I would I would audition about two thousand folks for twenty slots every year. I heard I heard it's the most ex more exclusive to get into than Yale. <laughs> right. It was just so stupid when I when people say that out loud. But I um, yeah I I I saw pro I, I saw more than twenty thousand auditions in my time there. Yeah. And I wish I had a good answer for you. I wish I had an answer that doesn't also make me feel bad about it sometimes, right? Because, um, I mean, there is there is a bar. There is a, there is. A, I think I believe that there is a minimal accepted, a minimum accepted like level of talent and training, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think that you have to understand some of the foundational basics of that. You don't have to have gone to grad school or even studied theater in undergrad. I don't think that even that's a. But you have to be able to understand that. That acting at its core is trying to get something from the other human being that you are talking to and understanding uh, thought process, I think, is one of the keys in acting is understanding your the way your particular character thinks and, and being able to answer the question, why did they say that for every single line that you have? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that there's that mm -hmm. after that. It's it's more alchemy than science, you know, Um I'm I'm ashamed to say that sometimes, especially in the early years, as I was sort of learning it too, I was holding on to a lot of the things that I learned as an agent, and I was looking more specifically in those early two or three or two or three years probably that I was there for people that I thought would have a better chance of a faster sort of entryway into the business. Hmm. In order to build the reputation of the program, right? I mean, I, I you know you have to you have to your successes make it more attractive. I mean, again, look at the at the prestige grad schools, right? But even that's a self-perpetuating thing. Yeah. So, you know, you go you go to one of the top tier grad schools and yeah, you have a higher likelihood of of getting in a room, right? Because of the continued reputation of the program that's been built over decades and decades. And so that becomes just a sort of a self-perpetuating um yeah, I don't know that you necessarily learn anymore or get better when you go to one of those schools, but right. the reputation that those schools doggedly hang on to uh, um, will get you, you know, if, if a casting director's room, if they have, if they can only, if they only have the time to see 10 actors, 
right? And and the director and the playwright have asked for eight, and they only have two slots left. Yeah. And I'm looking at a resume from somebody who went to a top tier grad school, and I'm looking at the resume of somebody who didn't go to grad school. And I know that my job is on the line as a casting director because if I don't bring in people, the maximum number of people who could potentially book the job for you, you're not going to hire me. It's such a scarcity mentality. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and casting directors don't make any – I made 500 bucks a week as an agent. <laughs> mm. I made shit. Yeah. And so, you know, when they're so desperate to get their jobs, they're being like, I'm going to take a chance. If I can only take a chance on one person, I'm going to take a safer bet. Yeah. But yeah. but the reality is, you know, when one, you know, some of those top tier programs take 12, 14, 16 people a year, 13 of those are not working <laughs> in five years or in 10 years. But the one or two that are getting, you know, Academy Awards perpetuate that that sort of myth <laughs> i hate that it's so stark you're not working or you're getting an academy award <laughs> <laughs> no, right. there's so much there's so much beautifulness in between i don't mean to make that distinction i don't mean to make that but, distinction uh, but yeah but well, i don't know you know but then after that i thought you know no my job my job is not to necessarily perpetuate that system or just look for the people who who according to some weird whatever the trend is in the moment have a better opportunity. What I need to look for are people who I, I feel will be good collaborators, who I feel will be good human beings to each other. If, if I'm asking, you know, if I'm asking people to come and live uh, and we offered stipends and they grew. I mean, one of the things I'm proud of in that program is by the end we were, we had secured a pretty decent amount of funding to help defray the cost. And so it wasn't just, you know, rich privileged white kids who could afford to spend nine months yeah. without a job. Um, um, but, you know, who are the people who will come in and be generous to one another? Because I think, I hope, I hope, maybe it's naive to believe that that's actually what what is rewarded over time is is a generosity of spirit and a collaboration. And, and I, but I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. Can we speak about that last point that yeah. you brought up, which is with these apprenticeship programs? Yeah. And ATL isn't the only one, you know, mm -hmm. Williamstown comes to mind. Yeah. I worked at the Flea for five years, which is yeah. also a trade, a work trade yeah. for opportunity yeah. situation. <laughs> you know, talking about the system, yeah. is that one that works? I mean, you came, you also talked about coming from a background yeah. of not privilege. I could not have done it. Yeah, yeah. Like I couldn't, I've auditioned for HL twice very early, right after undergrad. And yeah. I, and then even if I had gotten the opportunity, I don't know if I could yeah. move away for nine months. Who, how would I pay for anything? You yeah. know? Yeah. 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 I, I don't know if they succeed. I, I, don't, I don't think they do in a lot of ways. I think that, uh, you know, um, one of the things that was really important to me, especially after I took the job and started to see the impact that it had, um, was how do we how do we fund the, how, two things? How do we fund this better, and how do we um, decrease the theater's reliance on these folks for just labor? Mm -hmm. I think that actually even more than than maybe uh, at least equal to. The idea that you you have to you have to have money or some sort of support in order to do this is that is that is is what you are being asked to do actually worth 
the opportunities that it provides. And so those were two of my main focuses. And I don't think that I got it entirely right. And because I wasn't, you know, I was in charge of the program, but I wasn't in charge of the theater. I wasn't in charge of the policies of the theater and the, and the right. way in large way that, the, that folks were used and the sheer number of people. There were 40 people in that company every year but between actors and directors and designers and dramaturgs and marketing folks, like the whole range, the whole gambit. Um, do you think it should be allowed? Like, do you think it's a system that should remain do you think that Williamstown should be allowed to charge people in order to like apprentice for the summer? I have a pretty fundamental problem with charging people for that. I do. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the, the things about the program, and and, and I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating it here right now, right? Is is that it is that there we, no one was charged for that, you know? um, and there was there were stipends that grew. I think by the end you got five thousand dollars to help cover the the cost of being there for nine months, which helped. Yeah. It covered rent at least in Louisville, which was something, but it, yeah. it didn't cover all your expenses by any stretch. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It's you know it's one of one of many reasons why I left the job ultimately is that. It, it was becoming harder to reconcile that in my brain hmm. is um, I'd still think, you know, uh, um, nine, nine months of, of not having income besides the stipend that you get. If, if the opportunities are equivalent to the work that you are being asked to do is a hell of a lot cheaper than three years of grad school. Completely. <laughs> Completely, and you know that that's that's mostly how I how I thought about it is is that, yeah, uh, um, yeah, is that three years of grad school you're going to come out potentially with six figures in debt, and that's that's something you're never maybe never going to be able to pull your way out from under but if you work two or three jobs in the summer before you come and we give you five thousand dollars. And and you you know do a GoFundMe like you know and I, and mm-hmm. I, I which is a shitty thing to say you might but that coming out of that year with the connections that you're getting to the industry in New York and Chicago and the support that I hope that we're giving you to make this transition and it's like you don't it's not that you it's not that you leave and and you can't call me <laughs> right that's it's not, good yeah, oh my god yeah any actors theater people call michael whenever <laughs> oh, they you do. need they do. they do they do they do um but you know i hope i i hope that that puts you in a better place at least or, or i don't know um then then grad at least it gives you time to think right i think that um one of my other problems with grad schools is that a lot of well, they'll take you right out of undergrad and i think it's a horrible decision for yeah. so many reasons, I agree. so many reasons, you should never go to graduate school right out of undergrad. But at least this way, it's a transition year where you get a, a more realistic idea of what the industry is like, the good stuff and the bad stuff. And then you get some breathing room to try what you learned. And then if you decide again, if you decide, no, actually, no, now that I have this knowledge, this is not for me, then I've saved you three years of graduate school and six figures in debt. Yeah. So is it, is it, is it a good program? I I don't know. You know, is is it a good way of doing it? No, I don't know that any of them are. Right. Um, But it's, yeah. I mean, considering some of the alternatives, it's not a bad program. Right. Kind of to wrap up a little bit. Yeah. You've worked on a lot of new work. You've developed Mm -hmm. a lot of new work. What are you excited about when you see a young playwright or you know, a young director, like, what is your hope? This is kind of a two part question. Sure. What about new work? Are you excited about seeing? Mm-hmm. 
And then looking forward, where do you hope it will get us? What are you excited about for the future of theater? Oh, yeah. Wow, those are big questions <laughs> yeah. to end. Yeah. You know, I, I, in terms of what excites me about new work, just on that, for sort of that level to start, I, um, I just love work. Again, I, I did two degrees in English. Um, reading was fundamental to my existence as it was saved me as a child. Um, and so I, I just get excited by words. I'm fascinated by structure and form. And that, I don't, I'm not saying like traditional linear structure or form by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, I am just so fascinated by, I can't, I can't do it. I'm not a writer, but I'm fascinated by a writer's ability to create an entire world on a page. And I, I enjoy so much, uh, uh, learning the rules of that world. Right. And understanding that they are not the rules of my world. Right. Mm. But they are the rules of the world. This playwright has created and getting in there and trying to understand it. it. It activates my actor brain. Right. It's, it's why, why, why are these people together in this room or on this planet or in this void? And why do they say the things that they do and what do they want from each other is, is, is fascinating to me. And so I just, I get excited by young writers who are experimenting with, with form and structure. I get excited by writers. We just did a world premiere. It was the first, the first show I did here, my first full season mm. uh, by Emily Feldman. Yes. And one of the things I love about Emily as a writer is just, is just her language and the rhythm of it. Uh, that is, is fascinating to me. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know where it's going. I, um, we do another thing I do here. One of the things I learned at Actors Theater, right, is because we did a lot of short form theater. We did a lot of ten minute plays and one act plays, and 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 then uh, started doing in my in my last like six or seven years there a lot of site based work. And I'm actually I'm actually really excited about that and doing a lot of that here in Missoula, right? Site based work. Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah. Site specific. Yeah. Site specific and, spe and specifically short uh, site based pieces for small audiences. I'm fascinated with right now, yeah. uh, rather than and not in not in exclusion of, but rather than asking, you know, people to drive here and sit in a in a theater together. I'm saying actually first I'm going to come out to you, yeah. and you know we're going to have some drinks together and then we're going to go out and you're going to see a play in the backseat of a car or in a hotel room or on a school bus or wherever because i'm really fascinated with how um uh, uh um how how the place in which a playwright is writing can inform the writing itself and so we commission at least 10 i think a year 10 playwrights to write short site-based plays wow. that we perform in the community yeah i guess i'm just about again it goes back to opportunity right it's it's i uh, i took this job and i am an artistic director now which feels weird but um now my responsibility is to provide opportunity. And and so how, who are the playwrights that I, I can just, I can say, hey, I've got a little bit of money and a cool little project and, and let's work together. Yeah. What, I know I said I was wrapping up, but yeah. what do you think the role of Montana Rep is in this community? What mm. what are you striving <laughs> yeah. to do? I, I think our, our, our mission is twofold right now. Uh, and we spent a lot, my entire first year here was doing some, some small little theater like that and then figuring out what do we want to be? Cause we're not, we don't, I, I, we don't want to be what we used to be. What do we want to be? And I'm not sure that we, we have, I mean, it's been a year and a half. We haven't entirely <laughs> answered that question, but what I'm convinced of now is, is um, because we are embedded on a university campus, then I think our, our, our mission has to be in some large part educational and, and figuring out how to provide opportunities 
for students here, and I'm not, I'm not good at it yet, but we're trying, how students here can learn from, from the professionals that we bring in. Um, and then the other is, is I, we, we have such an opportunity here being the only professional theater in the state that I think our mission has to be serving the people who live here and figuring out what are, what are their stories and how can we tell those stories uh, responsibly and respectfully, and especially in terms of, um, you know, we just, uh, we, we, it's not public, public yet, but we just got some money to commission, uh, an American Indian playwright, um, to write a play that we're going to tour across the state that we're going to sit down in every reservation that we're in the 2021, 2022 season as sort of a first giant step toward telling stories. I think that the rep should have been telling for a very long time and hasn't. Right. Um, but, but, but we, we have to serve the people who live here. Mm. Any last thoughts? It's been really lovely. Thank you. Thanks for coming too. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Welcome to Montana. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, you can follow us on at Upstage Left Podcast on Instagram or on Twitter. Thanks so much. Have a great day.